You're listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast, where we interview entrepreneurs who have sold their companies and the advisors that help them. We elicit expert advice from exit planners, attorneys, merger and acquisition experts, accountants, business appraisers, and financial advisors, all with a goal of educating you about the sales process. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started a sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. And now, here's your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition. With us today, Lisa Gray, the managing member and founder of Gray Matter Strategies. She's been the author of two books, The New Family Office and Generational Wealth Management. But more importantly, her firm and provides advice to multi-generational families of wealth. She helps them get to the heart of their issues and guides them to their own solution. Her expertise is recognized around the country, and I'm real glad to have her today. Lisa, thanks for joining us. No, I'm very pleased to be here. It's an honor, and I'm very much looking forward to our conversation today. Great. Well, let's get us uh, kicked off with the first question, which focuses around how families can prepare emotionally and financially to go from earning money in their business to now having a transfer, whether that's you know between family members or to a third party, and that founder or the current owner is going to start spending some of the assets that they've accumulated. What, what are some of the ways that families could go about preparing for that experience? Well, that's a great question because it is such a huge shift. And I think one part of that shift is the fact that it is a very emotional change. You know, founders of businesses have spent their entire lives working hard to build the business. And in these cases, it's been so much more successful possibly than they've ever dreamed, and it's enabled them to do things for their family and have a lifestyle that has just been wonderful. So it's a wonderful gift to the family. And when you go from having a change in form of the wealth from an operating company to liquid wealth, it introduces a lot of concerns, a lot of risks, um, you know, in addition to the fact that maybe the wealth is not going to be growing like it was in the business. Part of that is also um, a factor in the timing of selling the business because, quite honestly, sometimes businesses need to be sold before they become an emotional attachment. So I would say that the critical thing in this type of planning is starting it early. You have to really be honest about what's going on in your business. You have to really understand that even though there's this emotional connection, it is a business and it is a mechanism for wealth creation. And understanding the proper time to make a shift from that form of wealth to possibly another form of wealth is critical. The other aspect of this is to realize that this is not happening just to one member of the family. This is a matter that's a family decision. This is having 
to have ramifications for the entire family's way of life, um, the quality of life that they might have, their access to those funds. So you have a lot of risks in individuals thinking that they can just have, you know, more access to the funds and the founders become fearful that that, that money is just going to be wasted away. So you have a lot of emotional elements in coming into this decision, a lot of values, um, concern that maybe the, the next generations don't have the same values as the first generation. So going back to the initial response and understanding that this is a family thing, this is something that needs plan for well in advance, um, and I guess one of the mistakes I see is that people don't plan for it far enough in advance, and then they have these types of decisions to make. They don't understand what's going on in their family. They don't know the values that other families have, members have, so they really can't make the best decisions. They end up assuming a lot of things about other family members, which may or may, may not be true. So things get set up as this family business or the wealth changes form from an operating company to um, a liquid or investment portfolio um, that really can affect the long-term success of the family. So um, I think in, in talking about this kind of shift, there are a lot of basic foundational elements that need to get addressed. And one of the best ways to, to do that is to actually do an analysis of the family. Um, I like to, to show families that their wealth really doesn't consist just of the family business. There's a whole sector of wealth in the intellectual, human, and social capacities of family members that often goes totally unrecognized or even if, it's, if you know, people are aware of it, um, it, it's kind of ignored. So it's wealth that also needs to be developed. So when you're talking about an exit strategy for a business, um, you end up thinking that there's going to be this one single pool of wealth. And then you have this situation where you're expecting that one pool of wealth to sustain the family going forward. And you have new generations being born all the time, and you have other people needing to benefit from this wealth. And so it becomes a matter of how do we make this wealth last for not only our own benefit for this, this retiring family member or just a shift in, in activity, um, focusing from you know, running a business to either retiring or maybe even turning a hobby into another business. So, so many elements here, but one of the first things to do is to understand that there still need to be some growth going on. Just because you're exiting a business does not mean that you can entirely turn your focus to wealth utilization or distribution. I've heard so many people at wealth management conference, you know, conferences advise advisors, okay, you have to shift your entire strategy from wealth to distributing. Well, you know, retirement has gone these days from maybe a 10 to 15 year expectation where you really wound down your life to a very active scenario that can last almost another lifetime, you know, 25, 30 years is a long time to be out there, and if you're simply focusing on distribution, you know, you may end up running out of money <laughs> beforehand. If not, you know, you're still going to be a significant drag on the family wealth so that future generations are not going to have as much benefit from that. So um, I, I've heard 
so many clients who really blow through their wealth once it becomes liquid or think that they can, can make the wealth last longer than they can or, you know, that they can do more with that wealth than they originally, uh, than they really can. So they fail to have this reality check. They don't understand the rate at which they're spending their money um, and they don't have a real solid grasp on what their situation really looks like. So if you don't have that, you really can't manage it very well. Um, so our processes have families getting to the heart of these issues. Number one, it examines very closely this emotional connection to the business. How can we segue this emotional connection? How can we preserve the value and the meaning of what this person has built while at the same time shifting the form of wealth in a way that it's not only going to continue to sustain this family member, but sustain the family in general for one generation after the next. So that's, that's a daunting task. But the first analysis of seeing, okay, what have we really done here? What is this asset? This is, the fact of the matter is this is an asset that can never really be taken away from the family. This business that has been developed, that has turned the wealth from an intellectual, human, and social form into a tangible form of material and financial assets, is something that is always going to be with that family, whether the business is sold, whether the business is taken over by another family member, whether partners, external partners are brought in, whatever the situation, that business is something that this person built and gave to the family, and that is something that can never, ever be taken away. That is the family's legacy. That is the family's story. And that is a story that can be told generation after generation after generation. So what's important to recognize is, number one, what that emotional attachment looks like. How do we preserve that? And how do we honor the work that's been poured into this business to make it the success that it's been made? And secondly, what other wealth does the family have to draw on to continue to grow the wealth so that this wealth, this original pool of wealth can be continually contributed to and continue to benefit generations farther down the line? So when we do an analysis, we also have to look at attitudes toward wealth. We have to look at generational perspectives or how different people in the family view the world because the fact is that the generation that built this business grew up in an entirely different social and economic backdrop than future generations will. So I find often that family patriarchs expect the next generation to just fully adopt their values, and that's an impossibility. They also expect to be able to have control over how that next generation spends money, and that is also an impossibility. Control is an illusion, and people want it, but they fail to realize that any effort to control people set up a rebellion in the people that are trying to be controlled. So I think a much better approach is to, number one, understand at this point of exit, what does our real wealth scenario look like? What is our complete portfolio of assets? It's not just the business. If that business is going to change shape, that wealth is going to change form, what other types of wealth do we have in the business and how is that changing form of the wealth created by the business going to affect the development of that other wealth that we have that we need to develop and use? 
So the whole shift focuses from the business to all of these other multidimensional focuses. And you have to understand what's being required of you in managing that situation. You also need to understand the type of support that successful. So this is a wonderful time in the life of family wealth success because it's an opportunity for family members to become involved in decisions that are made about the wealth. It's an opportunity for families to decide what their focus is going to be about the wealth, what their long-lasting legacy is going to be from the business. So there's just a plethora of opportunities here. And when families wait to implement these strategies or even try to design these strategies, they often end up making decisions that uh, really are ineffective and may work in the short term but really inhibit growth as well going forward. And just can't afford uh, from two perspectives, number one, the longevity perspective, and number two, the slice and dice effect of increasing numbers of family members. We can't afford to just focus on the part. So um, I think that the values and attitudes about the money, understanding that different generations are going to have different ways of looking at wealth and what it can do for them, and also the need for education of family members now that this wealth is in a liquid form, the dangers of wealth, what wealth can do to your life as well as what wealth can do for your life, becoming wealth, responsible wealth owners, dynamic owners who are involved instead of just sitting there getting a passive dividend check. Um, all of these things I, I, are elements. Yes. I wanted to pick up on something that you said, which is, you know, control leads to rebellion. Yes. And, yes. and this responsibility of now perhaps liquid family wealth um, being different than owning a business and an operating business which has great cash flow, but now mm -hmm. having the liquidity, it changed the dynamic. So, you know, families that I talk to, one of the things that they're concerned about is this inflow of, of liquid capital can produce negative results for their relationships with their children, for their yep. uh you know, all the, all the dynamics that go around with it. So what advice do you have for families that share that concern, that this influx of capital, they're not sure that, you know, they might recognize control would lead to rebellion, but the opposite is uh, they're not sure what the outcome is going to look like. Well, that's a great question, Noah, because this really brings me to the heart of our processes and our research that we've um, done and developed at Gray Matter because the reason we focus so intently on generational perspectives is this very factor. People who are so afraid of the negative consequences of having liquid wealth end up not talking to their family members, not knowing how other family members view wealth, automatically assuming that their progeny that they have raised are incapable of making responsible decisions about that wealth. And, you know, when you fail to empower other family members, you automatically make them feel that their opinions don't count, that they have no say over their own lives, that the way their life is going to be scripted is going to be according to your wishes, not theirs. And the lack of conversation that results from this type of event is astounding because what happens is the wealth creators will say, 
end up thinking that they're the ones who created the wealth, this money is ours, and it's up to us to decide what to do with it. And, you know, on a surface level, that might seem to be true. But let's, let's go back a little bit and think about how we were when we were single. Um, when we were single, our only responsibility basically was ourselves. We didn't have families to think about. We didn't have a spouse to worry about. Everything we did primarily affected us and not many other people. But let's just say, let's say decide, we decide one day to have a partner or a life partner or get married. That focus automatically changes because what happens for us automatically affects what happens with someone else. It automatically affects someone else's life. That comes into play even more when we decide to have children because, you know, everything that happens to us is going to affect the quality of our children's lives. So this money that we make, you know, if we have children and we have a spouse and we bring these children up in a lifestyle that is wealthy and privileged and, you know, or we, or let's say we, we don't do that and we try to hide the wealth from them. Well, they're not stupid, number one. They're individual people with brains who learn to think for themselves regardless of our efforts. And they're either going to figure out about the wealth or, like Jamie Johnson did, find it out, you know, find out about it on the Internet, which is an increasing possibility these days. So you're not, you're not kidding anyone. It's much, much better to just say, okay, look, this is what we have, and this is you know, how we need to be thinking about it. But going back to your question, the generational perspective that one generation has toward the wealth, particularly the wealth creators, are going to be different. The views of the wealth are going to be different from any other generation in that family. And it is the height of hubris to think that we are the ones that need to be making decisions on behalf of other people's lives. If you go back to the way our country was founded and you go back to Aristotle and, you know, the, the, the premise that everybody has the right to pursue happiness, that, if you go back and read that, it says that if you try to have control over another person, that negates that freedom of happiness pursuit. So we all want the best for our families. We all want what's best for them. And that's a noble, a noble thing. But to automatically assume someone is incapable of making wise decisions about money is a travesty. And it is a denial of that person's ability to be a responsible wealth owner. So what I advocate instead is let's, let's talk to our generations in our family. Let's talk to our children and see what they think about wealth. Let's make them apprentices early on and help them make decisions on their own within the safety net of our experience and our knowledge and what we want to have happen to them, our best interests, the things that we hope that they will achieve with their lives. But, you know, it's fair to impose what we hope they will achieve on them without asking them what they want to achieve. Jay Hughes, a well-known guru in this industry, says that the moment a child is born, it is the parent's duty to say, how can I help you achieve what you were meant to achieve in this life? But instead, we assume that we know what these children are to achieve, and we try to control the money in a way that supports our vision of what their life should be like instead of what they want their life to be like. 
But this is not saying that children should have free reign or other family members should just, you know, be allowed to blow through the money. That's not saying this at all. It means that we should become active participants in preparing the next generation to be responsible wealth owners, to be active in these decisions. And it's just like running a company. When you have fresh ideas coming into the company, that keeps that company alive. It keeps the business vibrant. It helps the company and the business model shift to the current marketplace so that the business continues to thrive and to grow instead of doing things the way they were always done for the sake of doing it the way it was always done and that business climbing into a deep, dark hole of an ivy tower like IBM did back in the mid-'90s. So the val- that's what causes the value of companies to decline. So... It's the same with our family, and it continually surprises me how these wonderful masters of, of businesses don't apply the same principles to their families and understand that new ideas from family members can inject life into the wealth, too, and that it should be a family process. So coming back to whose wealth it is, it really is the family's wealth. It really becomes the family's wealth at that point. And if you want to have the greatest influence over how that wealth is managed after you're gone, then you will apprentice your young people, you will apprentice new leaders to be responsible owners, and that way, when you're not trying to control people, they're going to be much more open to listening to what you have to say, and you're going to have a much greater chance of imparting your values um, and, and telling the family stories and passing those values along in a way that they're going to be reinterpreted and adopted through successive generations than if you try to clamp down and put limits and control things without asking other family members' input. So aside from apprenticing new leaders as, as a way to, you know, share values and, and create continuity and hopefully have parents that are have confidence in their children's capabilities. What are the other things that you think are families of wealth should be doing to maintain harmony? Can you share some other strategies that you think would be helpful? I think maintaining harmony um, really comes from a shift in the attitude of the wealth creators. Um, you know, when you get to the point where a family is exiting a business, um, you really have to change gears, and that's very, very difficult. Um, I think it requires just kind of a reevaluation of a redefinition of the role that you need to be playing because the role of, of founders is one of uh, creating the wealth and developing strategies that's going to, that are going to help this business grow and develop, and you've created this big pool of money, and now you're changing formats. So as the form of the wealth changes, the role of the founder also has to change. When you own a business and you've created a pocket of wealth, you have become a leader of your family. And in apprenticing new leaders, the greatest role for that leader that built the wealth is to become an educator and a mentor for those apprentices. So when you are trying to create harmony, you have to be able to communicate well. And communication and the way your family interacts together is what make up what are called family dynamics. 
and family dynamics emanate from the different generational perspectives that are at work in the family. So when you don't have an understanding of what those perspectives are, it's very difficult to communicate with your other family members because something that you say may be completely misinterpreted by another family member simply because of their perspective on life, which comes when they grew up and their personalities formed and their view of the world formed between ages 14 and 17. This is a permanent imprint. And Carl Mannheim, in his writings in the mid-60s and early 70s, noted that this imprint is so strong, it is so permanent that the rest of your life can be can negate this. Every influence you come up against can negate that. And that imprint, that natural frame of reference will automatically still be reverted to as the primary influence on the decisions that you make. So if families realize this, this is a tool that families can work with. But we have to know about it and we have to be willing to take a look at it. We also have to be willing to recognize that other people's views in our family may be different than ours. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It can actually help us influence the way the family goes in the future. So creating harmony doesn't mean that you just have everybody in agreement. It means that you can communicate with each other at a level where it's okay to disagree, that you respect each other's opinions, that you respect each other's views on life, and that comes from getting to know your different perspectives in the family generationally, both from an archetypical generational perspective like silent, boomer, Gen X, and also from a chronological perspective from the creation of the money, G1, G2, G3. Because both of those types of perspectives have a bearing on how the family interacts with each other. Um, so, I can't tell you. So, yeah, go ahead. So on, on interacting with... Um you know, G1, G2, G3, and it, different methods of communication. Uh, some people refer to you know, family governance as one of the means to control that flow of communication and help empower people and, and form these apprenticeship models. Maybe you could just describe, you know, your experience in dealing with different families and how they formalize that process of founders becoming educators and mentors, founders becoming, uh, you know, the taking, taking new leaders that they can apprentice. What does that look like? How would a family go about starting that process? Well, governance is often viewed as a rule book. Um, it's viewed as kind of a structure that's imposed on the family to get everybody to shape up and, and you know, be responsible wealth owners. And the important thing about governance is that it really is a living, breathing, fluid element. And it should be designed around the needs of the entities it serves. I, I made a discovery once. I just thought out of curiosity one day I will Google the word governance. And what came up was fascinating to me because I saw tons of different types of governance. There was electricity governance, there was technology governance, there was corporate governance, civic governance, all these different types of governance. And it struck me that governance is not just simply something, a structure that you impose on things. It is designed around the needs of the entity it's serving. So my next thought was what kinds of entities do families have? And I came up with three basic categories of entities. One is the family itself. The family is an entity unto itself. 
And as an entity, it has particular needs to develop the innate wealth of the family members, the intellectual, social, and human capacities of the family members, and also any other need that the family has to support its lifestyle, to provide health care, whatever else. So that's one entity. A second entity is the business, the family business. The family business has different needs than the family. The family business needs to generate capital. So you have to have tactical strategies that help that business develop capital to be able to be to send that capital back to the family to develop its wealth and supply its day-to-day living needs. The third family entity is the family office or whatever the family has set up as an equivalent. So you have then this flow-through mechanism, three-sided mechanism of family governance that has the needs and strategies and goals of the family that can only be determined through the family governance system and with the input of each family member, just like I was talking about in answering the last question, you can't really design a family governance system unless you know what the needs of family members really are. So then the business can be designed to throw off capital to reward shareholders or family members needing to benefit from that capital. And the family office is the flow-through service mechanism to the family that enables that capital to be invested in a way that's going to sustain the family from here on out. And particularly when a family business is being sold or some type of exit strategy is happening, that's a lot of times when families set up family offices. But I think family offices are a good entity to have even before then. But getting back to your question about governance, you know, a lot of people think that a patriarchal governance system is the way to go, where the patriarch sets things up, the patriarch decides what's going to happen, who's involved in doing what, Patriarchs will often say, um, okay, X member of the family, I want you to do this for the family, or X member of the family, I want you to do this other role. When, you know, that maybe is a good idea theoretically, but in practice it often fails because, again, you're not getting the input from the other family members voluntarily. You're assigning tasks for them to do, and you may or may not be aware of the true wealth that's contained in that family member as far as that family member's intellectual, social, and human capacities. So you may have someone who's very talented at uh, one thing, you know, creating art and becoming an art curator for the family and enhancing the family's art portfolio, but you're trying to stick them in an investment management mode or you're trying to stick them in a profession like, you know, being an attorney or a doctor or whatever, when that's just totally a wrong fit. But from the patriarch or matriarch's perspective, that's more of a, quote, real job. So if we take away these, if we peel back these assumptions that we have, we can really see what the needs of the family are, the needs, what the needs of the business are, what the needs of the family office are going to be after that business is liquidated, how that family office should be set up to serve the family. Then we have a real grasp on what governance should look like and how it can effectively serve the family and be an ongoing um, living, breathing mechanism for the family from generation to generation. So, you know, another popular governance form might be, you know, what they call kind of a democratic form. But here's, here's the real situation on that. If you make a democracy that has a majority, you know, a majority is 51% technically. That means that you're going you're gonna to have maybe 49% of family members who may, not, may or may not be happy with that. When you have disgruntled family members, 
you really set yourself up for a lot of problems, a lot of risk to the wealth because if you're not talking to the other family members and you get something passed that you want passed just with a 51% majority, then you've really opened yourself up to a lot of risk to your family wealth. And I see families doing this all the time. I see families saying, okay, we need to have a family meeting. We make a, need to make a decision like X. You know, and they have a preconceived notion of what that family meeting and how that decision should be a result, you know, what that decision should yield and what that decision should be. And what they're really trying to do is set up a family meeting or a family governance system that is going to support their vision of what the family needs rather than providing input and being the fluid governance structure that it needs to be. So I think uh, these are issues that are not easy. And no, they're not. Struggle, <laughs> right? Owners struggle with uh, not only finding the time to plan for this, but then implementing plans and, and balancing, you know, what they probably should be doing with what's more comfortable. And I think a lot of that goes back to control and matriarchs and patriarchs feeling that the control is a real comfortable spot for them. So what, what would you say owners should be doing to make sure that they leave a great, happy, long-lasting, and positive legacy behind? Well, I think uh, there's several ways to do that. One is I think they need to recognize that they need help. You know, families are, these are emotional issues for families, and it's very, very difficult. I would even venture to say it's impossible for families to navigate these types of waters on their own. And what they need is a completely objective third party with no ties to any other types of, of things to sell them or strategies to, to implement, but someone who will come in and allow the family to step back and see the larger picture of what's happening in the family and understand where they really want to go and then be able to help them create steps to get there. And as far as developing a legacy, there's nothing more important than telling the family stories. We have a process uh, called Storied Path that gets the version of the family story from every single family member, young ones to old. And we do that on a regular basis, and we create a book for the family that lets them see how younger generations' versions of the family story change through the years and also what those younger family members and other family members hear when the stories about how the business was created and the struggles that went on are, are repeated you know, throughout different generations. But keeping that story alive, understanding who that family member is the day that they're born into this family, what their expectations are as far as responsibilities, this is something, it's like planting a garden. You know, you're, you're, going to, you're going to put some seeds out into the ground, and you can't just abandon those seeds and expect them to grow. They need water. They need a certain type of food. They need all this nourishment, and it has to happen on a regular basis. So if you want to leave, leave a legacy that's going to stay and be vibrant and be meaningful to your family throughout the next generation, long after you're gone, this is the type of thing that you have to do. And, you know, it's never too late. You can sit down with family members and say, look, we want to get everybody's input. And some family members say, might say, right, and, you know, just be very doubtful of that. But if you're consistent in that approach and 
give them reasons to trust that this is a genuine effort and something you really want to do. And for a lot of people, this is very hard because they're, they're used to being in command of the business and running things and people jumping at, at whatever they you know, ask them to do, and it takes a real shift. So I like to work with family leadership first and get them in a place where they're ready to make this shift emotionally for themselves. Then we can spread that out to the family and getting everybody on board and kind of changing the dynamics and the, the DNA of that family toward one that's going to be, um, you know, a legacy-building family instead of just um, a wealth-creating, operating family. So one of the things that derail families, you know, unfortunately, and it doesn't happen often, but I think it's a concern for uh, families as they create a significant piece of liquidity are – you know, Ponzi schemes and scammers and, you know, partnering with the wrong person that's going to, you know, attempt to take away from the family instead of add to it. So based on your experience, what do you, what do you think are some of the ways families can avoid that problem? Well, I think, number one, um, it's another great reason to get family members involved in the way you create dynamic stakeholder owners is to give them something to do. And um, doing due diligence is a great way to do that. Um, I'm a big believer in forming family committees. And number one, you have to educate yourself on what you should expect from an advisor. Uh, So we have a process that helps families understand the type of due diligence they should be creating before they even set foot in an advisor's office because there's a whole piece there that is missing quite often. And it's simply a lack of being educated about, you know, what they should be receiving from advisors that, you know, the, the trust factor, people want to trust people so much. And I think sometimes, especially, you know, in situations like Bernie Madoff, you know, when he had such great, strong relationships, he had a glowing uh, resume. You know, he was head of the NASD, of all things. So why not trust him? But it just shows us that we can never, ever completely allocate these types of management decisions to someone else, no matter how much we trust them. It doesn't mean that we can't have things simplified and have someone come in and manage these processes for us, but it does mean that we need to keep tabs on what's going on and be in contact with that person regularly and understand, you know, from an investment perspective, what types of documents we should be receiving on a regular basis. what type of transparency, you know, how this person's getting paid, all of these different things that, that people are educated about due diligence. But going further, we really have to take a look at our family governance system as a mechanism of finding out the needs of our family and the goals that we have set. And that's the only way that we can really decide what type of advisors we need because we need a team of advisors that's going to help us achieve those goals and help us develop that organic wealth, the intellectual, social, and human capacities of family members into material and financial assets or some type of of wealth contribution for the family. We need to understand that um, this person is, we're hiring them to do a job for us. We need to understand the role that that advisor is going to to play in our family. We need to understand uh, the limits of that person's expertise. Well, how much we can stretch that person in um, their service for us that we ask them to do. Um, we need to understand how to be a good client for them and how to be a responsible partner in managing our wealth every bit as much as 
you know, looking at, at the credentials that they have. Because just like we've seen, people can have credentials out the wazoo and still end up being shysters, basically. So the idea is to, number one, decide what your needs are, what types of advisors you need, what role they're going to play, the job that you expect them to do, and then you can set up a list of criteria that you can send out family members out to interview these people. Um, it narrows your, your field, you know, number one. You can develop some basic questions, which we work with families to develop, that are going to help you understand within two or three minutes, is this an, is an advisor that you even want to continue interviewing or not? And then, you know, you can go from there. We have several layers of the interview process, reporting back to the family, um, getting, you know, maybe the family council. The family's large. You have 100 people. Obviously, you have time for them to weigh in everything. But representatives in the family council um, can, can hear these reports and make decisions on a fully informed basis instead of just, you know, hearsay through a family, a friend, family who, okay, well, this family hired this advisor and they did a good job for them. Maybe they'll do a good job for us too. And, you know, it can be, by the time you realize it's a job, it can be too late or very costly to get out of that situation. So we highly advise uh, the family developing its own due diligence criteria before they even start talking to advisors. And I think that goes so, a long way toward helping them protect themselves. Yeah. Uh, before we have to wrap up, I wanted to just ask you if you had any stories that you could share about families of wealth and, and the transition they went through. Maybe, you know, either kind of the good news story or the bad news story. You know, either way, I think our listeners find it valuable to hear about the decisions other families have made and, and what the results were. Well, I have a story that I tell often, and I prefer to focus on the good news stories. So this is a great news story. Um, there was um, a there is a huge family who very successful, 150 years worth of success, seventh generation family um, that had a decision to make. Their their primary their business was was not satisfying the liquidity needs of the family like it should. So, you know, they came to a point where they were going to absolutely have to create some liquidity. And uh, the family council actually came up with, did some research, did, came up with three possible solutions. One was to sell the company outright. Another was to take the company public. And a third was to simply hire some, you know, ha take on some, some private equity partners. Um, so... You know, there are 450 people in this family. And this family spent a year going around, meeting with every single family member, often, you know, not necessarily individually, but, you know, maybe in groups or in family branches or different family units. But each person was allowed to hear what those three options were, the advantages and disadvantages of each, and then each person had a vote on what the family should do. And that sounds like a really risky proposition for a lot of people. But guess what the percentage of approval for selling this family business was? 98%. Wow. That is a unified family, and we all know that a family united is almost impervious. That family went on 
to sell that major business that had been in their family for years. And that enabled the family to create four other companies, several investment companies that would enable family members to, other family members to invest, would continue to create capital for the family, but not restrict the flow of capital so much that, you know, within an operating business that the, you know, increasing numbers of family members were going to end up being damaged as a result. So that is a governance system that works. It's much along the lines of what we've developed. In fact, this family was gracious enough to allow me to use them. I wrote an entire chapter on them in my second book as an illustration of the governance system that I've developed. And I went through in their story in that chapter and pointed out how the governance system, you know, was working in this situation and how this contributed to the success of that family. So, you know, it doesn't matter how many family members you have. And I also hear families saying, oh, we don't have enough members for a governance system. Well, the fact is you have a governance system, even if there are two or three or four of you. The governance system is either by design or by default. And I think it's much more productive to have one that's by design. And another, just, just to give another quick story, another family I worked with was selling a company and was going to use the proceeds from that sale, um, or they, they were going public, actually. They were having a liquidity event, and they were going to use the proceeds of that sale to set up a family office. And they had all these lofty ideas of everything that they were going to be able to do with this liquid wealth, you know, provide the highest level of health care for every family member, you know, from generation to generation to generation, offer educational opportunities, ensure that everybody got an education. Well, all of that's very, very worthy, but you have to be realistic about those goals, and you have to understand that the money, no matter how much money it is, is only going to go so far. So I think, again, going back to doing an analysis, understanding what you have to work with, how fast you're spending that money, what your assets really are, the ones that you're not recognizing, all of these factors go into the exit strategy. And when you consider all of that and you have a good, well-working uh, governance system, you really set yourself up for success. It doesn't mean you won't have issues to face, but you're going to be much more prepared to face those issues and your family is going to be much able to weather, much more able to weather crisis, anything that comes along. Great. Well, Lisa, what else do you want to share with our listeners before we wrap up our interview for today? Um, I guess the most important thing that I like to tell families is that you are not in this alone, that everything you're feeling has more than likely been experienced in one way or another by another family, and that you don't have to make these decisions on your own either. That's why I do what I do, because I love helping families become more successful, helping families take the wealth that they've built and make it work for them instead of them, you know, being wagged around and, and by, by the wealth that they've created and becoming slaves to that wealth. I love empowering family members. And the more you are empowered, the more your wealth is going to become a gift. And that's, that's my hope for working with my clients, that I can offer them some opportunity to build that. So if, if one of our listeners has an interest in getting in touch with you, what would be the best way for them to do that? 
Um, I have a website, um, www.graymatterstrategiesllc.com, G-R-A-Y-M-A-T-T-E-R-S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-E-S-L-L-C.com. My email address is lisa at graymatterstrategiesllc.com. So you can either email me directly or sign our guest book on our website. And my, uh, you can reach me by phone at 804 804- Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us today and imparting your advice. We really appreciate it. And uh, thanks to all the listeners out there who are looking for advice on their exit strategy. Hope you join us again for another podcast. Thanks so much, Noah. Thanks for listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started the sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. If you have any questions about today's podcast, you can contact your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition at 855-540-0400. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and give us your feedback. Until next time, this is the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast.